apparently the word got out that I was going to be preaching, so a bunch of people took up and le- uh, just got up and left and traveled out of state, or some of them got sick ahead of time. So, but I'm glad for those of you who decided to stick it out. Second Chronicles, chapter 32. This is the third message of a of a series that I did from Sunday school. A few years ago, and I've preached the first two over the last few months dealing with Hezekiah's revival and how he turned the kingdom of Judah back to God. And we covered that, um, again, one message here, I think it was earlier this year. Or, um, it's, been, it's been over the course of a few months now. And this one will kind of f- would finish up the series if I was going to do them back to back to back. Uh, but they're going to be dealing here, of course, Second Chronicles chapter 32. This is this chapter details um, what I would call the resistance to revival. So revival has swept through the kingdom of Judah. Um, the nation is turned back to God again. Hezekiah started that in the first year of his reign, the very first day of his reign. Um, he said we need to get the temple cleaned out and get the nation turned back to God. And then they said we need to, we need to celebrate the Passover um, and do it right. And so the the celebration of that particular Passover was the greatest Passover scene since um, the time of Solomon, the Bible tells us. And then they went out and they actually, there was a, um, some of the northern tribes had come down from the kingdom of Israel. And they had partaken with them. And uh, just really a revival swept through the land. They had false gods being torn down and burned. And it was just a great time. And that continued, seems like, for about 14 years. The, what we're, the chapter here um, that we're going to look at takes place in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. So there's been a long time of peace and prosperity, but now the attack is going to come. And whenever God's people are drawing close to God, be assured there's going to be a battle coming. There's going to be resistance to it. Satan is going to take notice and put up some resistance. Some, and he's going to launch an attack against us. Again, this takes place, as I mentioned, the 14th year. So we've had 14 years of relative peace, and sometimes that happens. Satan doesn't necessarily attack immediately. He's going to assess the situation, plan out uh, the best course of attack from his point of view before he launches an attack. He does not launch uh, ill-prepared attacks. When When Satan is going to attack a Christian, he is laid out the plan, he studied us, he knows the weakness, and he's going to attack. That was one of the things when he was before God in the book of Job, he's like, I have no place to attack him. You've, you've put a hedge around him, I have no place to attack him. That tells us that he has been studying Job for a long time, been looking for a place, for a weakness, and he hasn't been able to find it until God, of course, gave him permission. But he always will he'll look at a life, and sometimes he'll attack instantly, and sometimes he'll, he'll plan it out a little bit. So we always need to be aware of that. When we never let our guard down. We must always be on guard against the devil's attacks. And this message is going to be examining the three main enemies that we face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And how we can successfully combat them. So the, the devil, what's, what's interesting about this is you have, just like in, in warfare, you have two foreign enemies, the world and the devil. They are on the outside. But then you also have what we would refer to as a domestic enemy, the flesh. Um, and many cities or castles 
have resisted the attacks of the foreign enemy. They've beaten back the sieges and then fallen because of a domestic enemy. The enemy is able to bribe somebody on the inside to open up the gates. And that is what the flesh, the flesh betrays us so much. It is not on our side. We do not trust our flesh. Um, and so he's, he's, he's on the devil's side, but he is dwelling inside of us. So it makes him a very insidious enemy. And so we need to be on guard for that as well. So let's look here at these three enemies, the, foreign en- the two foreign enemies, and then the domestic enemy. And then we'll look at how to um, defeat them. So the first one, let's look at the foreign enemies. Verse number one, we see an enemy coming up against the kingdom of Judah. After these things and the establishment thereof, so dealing with the revival and the establishment of the kingdom, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fence cities and thought to win them for himself. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll get into the message this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all you've done in our lives, Lord, and thank you for the great um, truths that you've given to us to cling to. And Lord, we know how the devil works, and as um, your word says, we're not ignorant of his devices, but Lord, I pray that we always be on guard against it, that you uh, guide us with your word and with your spirit, and that we, uh, we seek to please you with our lives and seek to glorify you and not glorify self. And Lord, I do pray for the requests that were asked this evening, that you meet each one according to your will. And Lord, I pray that you be with this message, fill me with your spirit as I preach. And I pray that we all use this time to leave here better, closer to God, uh, closer to you than how we came in. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have the foreign enemy coming. Sennacherib, king of Assyria. He's going to come in and he's going to launch some attacks against Judah. Now, this is obviously a very physical enemy for the kingdom of Judah, but we're looking at at it from a a little bit more of a spiritual allegory. And the foreign enemies will come in and attack the Christian. And, of course, while it is very popular in today's world to assimilate with the world, the the church we see oftentimes seeking to lower the standards, become more like the world. God is very clear that any, any friendship with the world is, makes that person an enemy of God. You cannot have a friendship with the world and a close relationship with God. They are not coexistent. And so let's look now at the primary attacks, really, uh, of each foe. These, uh, what we would refer to as Satan launching an attack and then the world launching the attack um, to, to our Christian walk. And we see some, some of these attacks in our text here or in this account um, this, uh, this evening. So the first thing, what the devil, we're going to look at the devil first, is he's going to use, he's going to try to get us to doubt God. He's going to attack our faith in God. We see this um, a demonstration of this in verse 10 and 11. We'll read a few verses here, actually, to demonstrate this. This is Sennacherib has sent a servant down to basically launch some psychological warfare against the kingdom of Judah, starting in verse 10 of chapter 32. Thus saith Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Whereon do you trust that ye abide in the siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give over yourselves to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Hath not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars, and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall worship before one altar, and burn incense unto it. 
or upon it. Skip down to verse 16. And his servants spake yet more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people out of mine hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of mine hand. Then they cried aloud with loud vo- they cried with loud voice in the Jews' speech unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to affright them and to trouble them that they might take the city. And they spake against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, which were the work of the hands of man. So this, long, this attack is made, trying to get the kingdom of Judah, the people of Jerusalem primarily, to lose faith in their God, to lose faith in their king as well, but attacking the God of Israel, saying there is no hope for you if you remain in this city. Your God will not save you. And this is one of Satan's favorite strategies. He attacks our faith. He says you cannot trust in God. He implements it in numerous ways. We, saw, we see it in um, the Garden of Eden. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 3. He deployed this tactic as well. Genesis chapter 3, we'll start reading verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Against Eve here, he begins this temptation by casting doubt on the word of God. I know God said, you're going to die, but you won't actually die. You shall not surely die. And then he casts doubt on the goodness of God. When he said, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. God is withholding something good from you. This will be a great thing for you. You're going to be just like God, knowing good and evil. This is, he's holding something back for you. He is attacking God's goodness, trying to get Eve to doubt God's goodness. And then he finishes up by casting doubt on the holiness of God. If God withholds something good from somebody, then is he actually holy? If Satan can destroy our faith in God, if he can get us to doubt God, then we will be crippled in our Christian walk. We will not be able to move forward. We will not obey God if we have no trust in him. Different portions of scripture would would point to that. How if you're going to obey God, you're going to step out on faith. You have to have that faith. If If Peter had no faith in Jesus, he would not have stepped into the water. None of those other disciples did. Peter had a particular faith that moved him to action. But he never would have obeyed God. He never would have moved out onto the water if he had, not, if he had doubted God. If he had doubted the word of God when Christ said, come. Or if he had doubted the goodness of God. If he thought he was just going to step out into the water and, God's, and Jesus was going to let him drown, then he's not stepping out. Faith, of course, is the avenue that souls are saved, for by grace are you saved through faith. 
So faith is, is so key in the Christian life. It is how we please God without faith. It is impossible to please God. So if we know that just from a few verses of God's word, you think the devil knows that? He knows if he can get a Christian to doubt God's, to doubt God, his word, his goodness, any attribute of God, then he has an advantage in the battle. Think about it. If you can get an army to doubt their leader, how much of an advantage is that in a fight? If they do not trust their general, then they're not going to move forward very confidently. And they're going to be halt, uh, faltering in the, when the battle takes place. Satan knows this. He's been dealing with uh, temptation and tempting Christians for thousands of years. His faith, he get, tries to get us to doubt God. So faith, our faith must, is, is so crucial in our Christian walk. Now, what does the world use for an attack? We see this in 2 Kings chapter 18, a different passage dealing with the same account here. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 18, and we'll read some more of this railing that takes place from the Assyrians to the uh, people in Jerusalem. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 31 and 32. Second Kings 18, verse 31. It says, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of a cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, and a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, olive and of honey, that ye may live and not die, and hearken not to, unto Hezekiah, when he persuades you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. So here we have an offer of some worldly wisdom. This is not a wise thing to do to stay in Jerusalem. Why don't you come on out? You surrender to us, and we'll put you in a good land. We'll take care of you. you, you you'll have to stay and, and be by, in your own house for a little bit, but then we'll come and we'll take you out of that land, and we'll give you this this very good land, it's going to be so good for you, so beneficial to you, uh, if you just follow my advice. And boy, isn't that the world's call to Christians. You know, why, why in the world would you keep going to church three times a week? Why, are you, why do you think you have to live by this certain standard? You can't go out and have fun like the rest of us. Man, you're, that's, that's holding you back from something good. You just need to leave the, the Bible behind or don't take it so seriously. This, of course, is dovetailing right along with Satan's casting doubt upon God. Um, the world tells us, don't trust in the Bible. It's, it's antiquated. It may have been good thousands of years ago, but, but this is a different world now. Or, why don't you just trust in, the, in our view of what the Bible means, of what the Bible says? And that's coming into churches quite prevalently. I was in a church, uh, we were visiting family a few years ago, and I was in a, in a church down in South Dakota, and uh, the pastor, the message that the pastor was preaching is, he's basically saying how you ought to love yourself. And he used the verse um, uh, that we, sh we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And he was using that to say that we need to love ourselves. And I was just like, wow, that's completely, of course, a twisting of Scripture. But this isn't a it's a Baptist church. It's not a fundamental church by any stretch of the imagination. But this was in a church. A pastor saying, you need to love yourself. And I was, I was just, I thought lightning was going to come down and strike the building as I was sitting in there. 
But this is how the world twists it. This is worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom has infiltrated the churches and said, this is how you need to grow your church. This is how you need to teach your church, is to our wisdom of what the Bible says. Our view of what the Bible says. And countless Christians fall prey to this. Just as Satan convinced Eve to doubt God. And guess what? If you doubt God, you have to trust in something. If you're not trusting God, you're trusting in something else. And that's where the world comes in as the devil's partner. Yeah, you can't trust God, but you can, you can trust us. And they offer this worldly wisdom. And there will always be the contrast of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Let's see what worldly wisdom brings about in a life. Let's turn to James chapter 3. When you follow the world's call, things may go smooth for a little bit. But it will not last. James chapter 3 verse 13. says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. <clears throat> but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. The wisdom of this world will bring about this envying, strife, deception, Confusion, every evil work, the Bible says. And when you follow the world's wisdom, oh man, this is a better life. Come over here and you'll have, you'll have this great life. And you get over there and you suddenly realize, hey, that person over there has a better life than me. And you start envying. And then strife kicks in. And then every evil work, you're trying to get ahead. Now deception plays in as well. And you're trying to get ahead of everybody else. You want to have a nicer life than everyone else. That's the world's wisdom. They say, it's all about you. You do whatever it takes to make you happy. And boy, is that a way to absolute grief and a horrible way to live. Trying to live just to make you happy. Man, when you, when you live for that, you hurt others around you so much. And your friends and your family soon don't want to spend too much time with you. Well, that's okay. You've gotten ahead. And how does that feel? When it's all about yourself. And that's what worldly wisdom is. Put yourself first. But it will result in this horrible life of constant strife, confusion. It's not the route you want to take, but that is the route that the world offers. Satan, Satan casts doubt upon God. God tries to get you to doubt God's goodness, God's word. So that you don't, you don't trust in God the way you should. And then you're looking for something else to trust you because that's what we do. Then the world offers something to us. And what are you going to trust? You're going to trust God? You're going to trust the world? Or sometimes we say, well, we'll just go ahead and trust ourselves. And that brings us to the domestic enemy, the enemy within. <clears throat> Let's look at verses 24 and 25 of Second Chronicles 32. Back to our text. Second Chronicles 32. Well, see, Hezekiah himself fell prey to the enemy from within. 
He defeated Sennacherib. Well, God defeated him. He trusted in God, and God defeated the Assyrian army. But Hezekiah fell prey to the domestic enemy. Verse 24 of 2 Chronicles 32. In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death and prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. For his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Hezekiah, though God had done so much for him in his life, the Bible says, rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. He fell prey to the flesh, to pride, first of all. And this is the first thing we see that the flesh will deploy, or one of the main things that the flesh deploys against us is pride. In verse 23, we would see that many brought gifts unto the Lord to Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all nations from thenceforth. And just laying the groundwork for pride. And if you, the geopolitical um, situation of the day, the Assyrian Empire being, of course, the, the primary en- uh, empire in the region. And when the Assyrian army was defeated there in Judah, you can imagine all the ones that were against Assyria flocking to Jerusalem, forming alliances with Judah against Assyria. Uh, Babylon, we'll see, come into play here a little bit later. They would have been uh, a major player in the region as well against Assyria. And you see them trying to form alliances, an alliance with Judah. So all these presents, all these gifts coming in uh, to Hezekiah, and he succumbed to pride here. His heart was lifted up, the Bible tells us. Now, pride is quite possibly the most preached against attribute of the flesh, and with good reason. Um, Pride is the most covert sin that we face. It is the hardest sin to pin down. Oftentimes we think of pride as something easy to spot. You know, you can tell a proud person when they're walking around boasting. You know, you you see that a lot in in young men, especially through their teenage years, into their young 20s. It's, It's It's a common thing to see, but pride is also very, very insidious. And sometimes we have these other sins pop up that we're trying to squelch, and the reason we can't put it down is because the root of it is pride, and we don't even realize it. So we're just plucking the weed, and the root remains, and it's just going to keep coming back up and keep coming back up. So we must be on guard against pride. Of course, pride is what caused Satan to fall. If it can take, if pride can take the anointed cherub and turn him against God, what do you think it will do against a human? It will just twist, it all, twist us all around, and we won't even realize it. Pride is so dangerous in a life. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but this is, again, a primary area of the flesh, where the flesh will puff itself up. And we like to think that we're something special when, of course, we're not. Um, You look at Hezekiah's life. Who had rendered all this good stuff to him? Who had gave him all that stuff? It was God. It was God. But he forgot about that, and he started thinking more of himself than he ought to, just as Nebuchadnezzar did there in uh, Daniel chapter 4. He gets out in his palace. He's like, man, look at all this beautiful palace that I built, all the lands I've conquered by my might. And God comes to him and says, no, it it wasn't you. It was me. And so he takes his reason away from him and becomes mad 
for seven years. All because of pride. Thought he had done all these things. And we can look back in our life. And we have all accomplished different things, some more than others. We've maybe reached some uh, high points in our career. That wasn't us. That was God enabling us to do that. So we need to remember that, lest pride take hold and lead us into sin, as it did here. Coming along with pride is thanklessness, another area of the flesh. We see that, we already read the verse there in verse 25. We often miss this. We don't think this is that important. And it's, it's, again, it's, it's so connected to pride. We think we deserve the things we have got, the things that we have received, and therefore we're not thankful like we should be. We don't praise God and thank God for the things He has put in our life, for the things we have accomplished in our life, because we think we deserve to do it. It was us. And so we don't thank God for it. And so all this stuff that we have in our life that we haven't even thanked God for. It's much like a, a child. A child does not really realize everything that the parent provides for them. Obviously, you know, they, they haven't come to the, the level of, of maturity of the, of the mind or anything like that. Um, so they don't quite realize that. That's, the same, that's true with us as well. We can never know really all that God has done for us. All that God has protected us from, we will never know that. But we do know some of the things, and we need to be thankful for that. Just like we expect our children to say, thank you. Thank you for dinner. Thank you for the ice cream or or whatever it might be. Thank you for the present. We expect that. But when God gives us presents, gives us sustenance, do we thank him for it? Thanklessness comes up so, so much in our life. And what are the, what's the danger of thanklessness? What does that do to a life? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. It has a huge, huge impact in our life. Romans 1 verse 21 is what we'll read. It says, because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. And if you're familiar with the chapter, it's a downward spiral into depravity. Now, I'm not saying thanklessness was the cause or the only cause of this, but it's a huge contributor. They said, we're not going to recognize God as God. We're not going to be thankful for what He has done in our life. For the air that he has given us to breathe. For the health that he has given to us. The ability to go out and see things. This beautiful creation. We're not going to be thankful for that. And that played a major part into the downward spiral that we see here in Romans chapter 1. And it will severely hinder your ability to do anything for God. When you are thankless. And the flesh will use us over and over again. And we are commanded in the Word of God, over and over again, to be thankful. When you see repeated commands like that, there's a reason. It's because it doesn't come natural to us. The flesh doesn't like to thank God or be thankful for other people, for other things. Who likes to say, thank you for helping me? I I needed help. We don't like to acknowledge that we need help. So we don't like to say thank you when help does come. 
Psalm 100, verse 4, tells us to be thankful. Colossians 3.15, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Just three verses. You can go through the Bible and point out, pull out many more. These, things telling, these verses telling us to be thankful. And when was the last time that you pondered all that you had to be thankful for? To sit down, and this is something I'm guilty of in my, in, in my prayer time. When was the last time we did a prayer that we never asked God for something? That we just thanked Him for things? That'd be a complete switcheroo on our prayer life for the most part. But He's done so much for us. Don't be thankless. That is what the flesh wants in our life, and that will cripple us. It will cause us to fall. And last thing, as we get back to the text, the, one of the strategies of the flesh is to get us to become careless. Second Chronicles, back to Second Chronicles 32, we'll look at verse 31. The flesh likes us to be careless. says, how be it, in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. And he failed this test as well. You would see in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 2, talks about that, how he, he showed the ambassadors all the treasures of his kingdom. He got careless. There are many dangers for the Christian as we walk through this life. And sometimes God, as he is put here, he's, he will prove us. He will try us. He's not going to set off the alarm bell necessarily. He's not going to make a big deal. You're not going to think this is a big deal. And God is just going to say, let's see how he handles this. Let's see if he will pass this test or not. There is no record given in the word of God about Hezekiah telling the Babylonians the greatness of of his God, and ascribing glory to God, or, or having the ambassadors visit the temple. Solomon brought, back, or brought uh, the Queen of Sheba to the temple, and she, that was one of the things she mentioned about the greatness of him, was his, his procession into the temple, into the house of God. There's no record of Hezekiah doing that. He was filled with pride at this time, and he got careless. Just defeated the empire of the world at the time. I don't have to be on guard anymore. These are my friends. But it was a mistake. Hezekiah focused on showing everything that he had accumulated instead of giving God the glory. He fell because he was careless in this regard. And how often do Christians let something into our lives that we do not see as a threat, but it ends up holding us back, even sometimes bringing us to ruin? We were careless. We didn't see it as a threat. There's nothing wrong on the surface. Let me bring it into my life. And it can quickly cause us to stumble. We grow, care we grow careless, and we're not on guard, and it can... Make us fall just like that. Don't be careless. That is what the flesh wants. He wants you to grow complacent in your Christian life. To not be on guard anymore. To become careless. And Hezekiah fell into that. Now how are we going to defeat these three enemies? Many avenues of attack that they use. And we, we just touched on a few. There's many more. 
How are we going to do this? Knowing that we have enemies and some of their tactics do not guarantee success. We must prepare for the battle. Too often we live our Christian life just trapezing along and we go into a spiritual battle with no forethought or any idea of how to defeat the enemy. We often think we can go into a battle, into a spiritual battle, pray a few prayers for God's power, and the victory is going to be ours. But that's not how victory is won. It doesn't work that way. We must be proactive. Let's look at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 32 here. With the enemy that he defeated... Hezekiah was proactive in his approach. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 32. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains in the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened, also he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken, and raised it up to the towers, another wall without, and repaired Amillo in the city of David, and made darts and shields in abundance. And he's going to organize the army, the defense from there. But he was proactive. He sees the enemy is coming. And so he starts preparing. We see he, he stops up the water that would be around the city, so that the Syrians can't have the water right there. And then he's building up the walls. There's some broken down walls. He repairs those, and he builds another wall. He's making these... Huge preparations, and he stockpiles weapons and armor in preparation for the battle. And if we do not make spiritual preparations, we can never hope to win the spiritual battle. Over and over throughout God's word, we are commanded, we are exhorted to beware, to take heed. And this requires diligence. It requires us to think of our lives as a spiritual battleground. And that Satan can launch attacks at any time from anywhere. That's difficult to do hour by hour. Because we live in a physical world. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's a spiritual war, so it requires spiritual weapons and spiritual armor. So we have to constantly be aware that our life is not just a physical life. It's a spiritual battle. When there's friction between fellow believers, who do you think is rejoicing? It's Satan. He's launched an attack and he's he's made some ground. Our interactions with others, it's all spiritual You cannot separate the physical from the spiritual. They go hand in hand. Yes, we walk in the flesh, but we do not war after the flesh. So think of your life. Think of the interactions you have with your spouse, with your family. It's either going to spiritually harm you or spiritually benefit you. So we must be proactive. We must take steps. To strengthen our life. To strengthen our defense. Just as Hezekiah stockpiled those weapons and that armor. And built up those walls. 
Are we doing the same in the spiritual sense through meditation upon His Word? Or memorization, if you have the ability to do that? Do we stay active in our prayer life? Don't just have a time to pray in the morning and then not pray throughout the rest of the day except for meals. Keep that prayer life active as you, as you have, you're jumping in the car to go somewhere for work. You know, maybe pray for safety. Pray that you'll have good success on wherever you're going, what job site you're going to. Keep that prayer life active. Keep it continuous throughout your life. Pray without ceasing, we are commanded. With that, thing, with that principle in mind. Or as Ephesians 5 instructs us to do, speak to to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Keep these these songs that we sing, the, the scripture songs that we sing, keep them fresh in your mind too. You know, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That'd be a good song to keep in mind as you're going into the world. We are, this, Ephesians 5, when it tells us to speak to ourselves in these songs, it was written for our benefit. To help us draw closer to God. These songs aren't just time fillers. Think about the principle behind it. There's a few songs in our hymn book that I don't sing because there's really nothing there. So those, these hymns that we have, these great hymns that we have, they, they, they hold such great truths that can encourage us because they're talking about the, the truths that are found in God's Word. And we just remember songs much better than we remember verses, it seems. Um, so these things, it can all help us. But are we stockpiling these spiritual weapons? Are we preparing for that battle that is to come? Are we being proactive in the spiritual warfare? So that is one, way of, one step to defeating the enemy. But also, we need to remember... Who we serve. Well, let's look at Isaiah chapter 37 for this. Again, this is actually Isaiah's account of what we've been looking at in Second Chronicles. It's, uh, it's interesting. You have three accounts, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and then Isaiah, of this siege. And that's, you don't really find that in any other siege recorded in the Word of God. So I think it must be pretty important here. But Isaiah chapter 37, um, we'll start in reading in verse 14. This is after the servants of Assyria have been um, blaspheming God. Hezekiah takes the letter that they had sent. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying... O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, that art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou alone. And I love the Lord's response here. Verse 21, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, 
Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee, and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice, and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? And it goes on to then how, what God is going to do to Sennacherib. I, just, I love this, this passage and God's response. But you see here, Hezekiah, and, and we know this is Second Kings chapter 18, uh, verse 5 it is, I believe. Um, Hezekiah is mentioned as the, the, the king of, of Judah that trusted in God more than any other king of Judah. And you see his faith being on full display here. Um, he goes, goes to the Lord with this, obviously a very burdensome thing. He knows the people are most likely losing morale. They're losing their spirit for the fight. And so he goes to God and says, look, look what, look what Sennacherib's doing to you. He's focusing this, he's making this between Sennacherib and God, not between Sennacherib and himself. And that's what we need to realize is these, these attacks, these battles that take place, it's really to see who is going to be glorified, God or Satan. So we need to keep that in mind. But I love, I love Hezekiah's reaction to this. Instantly goes to God. And in verse 17, at the end there, he says, which has sent to reproach the living God. That reminded me of David when he goes to fight Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Hezekiah and David had the same mindset. There's no way this guy can win. Look at who he's going up against. He's not going up against me. He's going up against God. And that's what we really need to remember. If we're going to defeat the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, remember who we serve. We serve the God of the universe. When Hezekiah was faced with this enemy, he wasn't relying on worldly wisdom. He wasn't doubting God in the slightest. Hezekiah had a real understanding of who he was serving. And again, we must keep that in our minds as well. Never lose sight of the fact that our Lord, our God, is the Almighty. He is the King of Kings. He is the I Am. And He is Emmanuel. God with us. Now, do we remember that He is always with us? Is the question. This great God, the source of great power, a power that no other power comes close to the almighty is with us and if god before us who can be against us romans tells us so when we're faced with these battles and these temptations coming fast and hard and seemingly from every direction remember god is right there he can put the hedge of protection there don't succumb to the flesh don't say, well, I'm eventually going to yield to these temptations. My strength is going to fade and I'll eventually succumb. So I might as well um, save myself the trouble and go ahead and succumb now. That's the wrong mindset. Remember who you are, who you are serving, who is on your side. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we rely on God for our strength, for our victory... It doesn't matter how many temptations come at us. We will always remain victorious when we are relying on our God 
So remember who you serve. And as we close here, again, once revival has sprung up, once you've begun living a life for God, there's a battle coming. So we need to remember to prepare for this battle with God's wisdom and in God's might. Again, beware the attacks of the flesh as well as the attacks of the world and the devil. And again, ultimately it gets back to that faith. That is how Hezekiah defeated the Assyrians. But his lack of faith or his his lack of awareness with it is how he lost to the flesh. So remember who you serve and trust in him. And we will always be victorious through him that loved us. So the battle's coming. You got three enemies. Be proactive and you remember who you serve. And I think you'll make it through just fine. Let's go ahead.